GVA Legal Podcast. My name is Jean Kambuni, and I am your host. The 2022 general election is over, and the election results have been announced. On today's episode, we will be discussing election petitions, specifically the presidential election petition. Our guest is Dr. Conrad Basiri. Dr. Basiri is a lawyer with experience in academia, the public sector, and civil society in multi-level governance, democracy, constitutional law, and development. He's also the former chief of staff in the Kenya judiciary from 2018 to 2021. Welcome, Dr. Wasiri. Thank you very much, uh, Jean. It's a big pleasure to be here today and uh, to discuss this very topical issue of uh, presidential election petitions. Thank you. Let's get right into it. What is an electoral petition and how is it different from the other cases brought in a court? Well, uh, an election petition is uh, basically uh, a legal challenge to the results as declared by the IEBC. And when we talk about a presidential election petition, then uh, basically it is a legal challenge in the Supreme Court against the results declared by the Independent Electoral and Boundaries uh, Commission. You asked about uh, the difference yes. between an election petition and other cases, and in, other the court. cases in the court. The, the main difference is that uh, it has very specific procedures, different from other general cases. Uh, at some point, there is a discussion whether it combines civil and criminal elements out of the election process. There's some discussions about uh, the, the, the nature of evidence and other legal processes around the, the petition and the burden of proof, which make it somewhere in between a civil and criminal uh, process. In uh, legal terms, it's called uh, sui generis. Well, then let me ask another question as well. Does it answer a legal question or a political question? I mean, the election process is essentially a political process. And if I'm contesting the results of the election, am I speaking to a legal question or a political one? Well, uh, we must get one thing very clear. Uh, a court process is a constitutional and legal process. Uh, the difference is that the decisions of the court or the issues which the courts considers to reach its decision have political implications. I mean, the, the elections and the political aspect, where candidates choose their political parties as vehicles, they go out and campaign for votes on the voting day and the announcement of the elections and the celebrations thereafter, the legitimacy that follows the candidate after the election, that is a political process. But the questions about how the process was carried out, the issues which are relevant for the court's consideration, the evidentiary burden and how it's discharged and they reach uh, the decision by the court, that is a constitutional and legal process. But it has political outcomes. Can we say that the judiciary plays an oversight role over the right to a free and fair election? Yes, that is uh, a clear and direct statement. The political process is subject to certain legal and constitutional rules and processes. And the court basically ensures that the management of the election, right from the start to the end, is subject to and adheres to the set rules. And these are legal rules in our statute books and regulations. So the, the process of um, adjudicating over whether the process met uh, the standards in the law is actually very legal, technical court process, but its outcome, like today, the, the candidate declared, maybe for some reason the court 
orders that uh, we do the elections afresh. You know that has political implications. Uh, but the process towards doing that, the courts consider whether the law was followed, whether procedures laid down were followed. And um, the outcome of it, uh, as I said, uh, is, uh, is uh, political. But uh, to be clear, courts do not consider political issues directly, if especially they are not material to the rules that the court looks at as to how the election process was managed. And that is uh, the, the, the difference. So the process is legal. The content of elections is political. That is the difference. Let's see now the election petition process for the petition process for the presidential election right now. Who can initiate a presidential petition? Anybody can initiate election uh, petition. What happened is that uh, after the enactment of the 2010 constitution, the constitution really expanded what we call the local standard. And this in very ordinary terms means who can approach the court for any issue. And uh, previously, it was very narrowly interpreted. You must have a direct interest uh, in the matter. So, for instance, if you are a party, if you are the IEBC, or if you are the candidate So before, lost, election petitions, presidential election petitions could only be initiated by a presidential candidate. Yes. So if you were a candidate in that election, yes. whether it was the 2017, uh, 2007, 1997, 1992 elections, only presidential candidates could initiate a presidential petition. Yes, precisely. But now, and this actually extends even to other matters. Uh, you remember uh, the case of the Times Union Trust with Professor Wangari Mathai. The case was thrown out because they say that she has no direct interest in the 64-story building that was to be put up in Uhuru Park. So she had no local standard. But now across the board, on all other matters, including election petitions, if you remember in 2017, there were more than one election uh, petitions against the presidential election, and not all of them were initiated by Raila. They, they, there was an action by civil society organizations uh, after the repeat election. And they became a consolidated petition in the end. However, any person can um, initiate a presidential election petition and it could just it could be on an issue with the result, the process, or it could also be to further the law and the interpretation of election laws, or rather our interpretation of election presidential election laws. Very true, very yeah. true. And that is the expanded space and uh, democracy space we are in, thanks to the 2010 constitution. Remedying the mischiefs of the past. Very true. Including uh, the mischief of a service of petitions. Presidential election petitions could only be served in person. Yeah, very true. We remember those old days when uh, you had to do personal service, you had to personally uh, sign the documents. I remember Kenneth Matiba had... Uh, given powers of attorney because he was indisposed at that time, he was sick, and had asked uh, his wife, Edith, through powers of attorney to execute his uh, petition. And the court rejected and said the sick Matiba had to sign the documents, and that was a point. So we, we, we have seen some very dark times, but uh, thanks to the new constitutional dispensation, we can see uh, access to justice in all its holistic uh, sense. Now, another question. Um, what are the grounds for a petition? If now I would like to file a presidential petition before the Supreme Court, what must I state are my grounds, the reasons for which I am filing the presidential election petition? Are we limited in any way? 
basically you know uh, after the IBC declares uh, the results of the election basically you go to court uh, to challenge uh, the process to challenge the results you can say that um, and you know here you rely on even the statements of the court from the past the court has said that elections are a process not an event of course some people differ with that view but i agree that there are a, a process right from procurement right from the funding of the aibc uh, to voter education to the election day to the counting to the tallying and to the announcement of the elections the entire process is managed by set laws right from the constitution to various acts of parliament to regulations that have been put in place to guide the process so if an aggrieved party be it a kenyan like you or me or a candidate uh, to the election or any other person or the ibc part of the commissioners who are dissatisfied they could go to court and challenge that result and say that the election was not carried out properly the result does not reflect the will of the people as expressed at the ballot but then more importantly whatever you state has to be backed by evidence that is why you file it with affidavits and uh, provide evidence to the court using the rules which have been set down uh, by the petition of course as we say the procedures applicable are different from the other cases but the bottom line is that uh, whoever alleges proves and says uh, the result did not reflect the will of kenyans because of one two three four or uh, the election was not carried out in accordance with provisions of the law because this law was breached and here is the evidence of how it was breached and because the courts have stated in the past that um, there were substantial irregularities uh, to warrant you know and then you pray for the orders is it cancellation is it uh, what um, yeah but uh, basically you 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 submit on the process of the elections or the results did not reflect the will of the people and then provide the evidence using the rules uh, set aside uh, to to manage the petitions article 140 of the constitution um speaks to this presidential election petition process and addresses the questions as to the validity of the election and it says that the court then can make two determinations so a determination as to declaring that the election was valid or a determination that the election was invalid and must then be redone what is the threshold for a validation or a nullification of the election and i think this is the third election that we are having since we had our 2010 constitution one election was validated the 2013 election and the 2017 election was nullified what leads the court to these disparate outcomes okay uh thank you that's a very good question and uh, a bit of uh, background uh, to that eh? i i hope this will be interesting <laughs> for the listeners as well you know we have come from um a constitutional dispensation uh, where the the jurisdiction of the courts uh, with regard to determination of election disputes has fundamentally changed um if you look at the practice uh mainly before uh, the in the 90s the 80s the 90s 
and even maybe to the early 2000s, is that there was a very restricted role that the courts played uh, in adjudication of election disputes. And if you look at some of the judgments of the highest courts on even presidential election disputes, not just in Kenya, during the Matiba and Kibaki days challenging the Moi election, you look at courts uh, even on the continent. There's uh, uh, the, the, the court in Ghana, uh, the, the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they, they stated that uh, there is a lot of hesitation in the courts to nullify a presidential uh, election, and they wouldn't do so easily. They stated that. And, but this has gradually changed because now we have constitutional dispensations where the role of the court in elections, be it presidential or other levels, has been enhanced. And the power is expanded and the role of the court invited more uh, than it was before. And therefore, uh, the probability of a court canceling an election is enhanced because of the constitutional space which has been given uh, to them. And that is the context in which in 2017 we had an election nullified. That is the context in which we had the Malawi presidential election nullified and fresh elections uh, ordered. In Kenya here, the candidate whose election was challenged, um, of course, there was a second election and he won. In Malawi, it resulted in a change of uh, regime. And uh, this demonstrates where the courts are now. That was the background to your question. Now, to answer your specific uh, question, in that expanded space of the role that courts play, um, the, now they have rules with which they look at uh, to determine whether an election is validated or can be invalidated uh, by, by, by the court. And here you look at, uh, for instance, and there are many tests uh, and different approaches by different courts. I won't go into details. But the summary of it is that, um, for instance, the, the substantive effect test. Here, they say that uh, if there were irregularities, did they actually substantially affect the outcome of the, uh, election. Of the election? So maybe uh, there was uh, forms which were, did not have security features, uh, or maybe just alterations here and there, but do not affect the substantive result. Or maybe there were some telling errors, but you check the error and you find it's 100 votes out of 14 million votes. So the court will look and say this did not affect. The other side is whether there was substantive irregularities. Here you're not looking at the outcome, the counting of the votes, or whether it affects the outcome. You're saying, uh, did the IBC procure the voting, uh, the, the, the printing of the voting materials and election materials well? Did they recruit uh, returning officers and have competent people? Uh, did they ensure that all the laws have been followed, the process and all that, the regulations, were they followed all through? And if you find that there were substantive irregularities throughout the process, and actually that is what happened in 2017, uh, the, the, the court then said, please carry out a fresh election and ensure that you do it in proper adherence of the, the law. And the debate, of course, remains whether uh, the substantive effect rule, which 
I know it's a carryover from the common law system and from the, the early 2090s uh, practice, but eventually um, adherence to rules and prescriptions of the law are becoming more and more relevant in terms of um, uh, gauging whether to, validate, to invalidate or sustain uh, an election process. So those are the issues which the courts are dealing with now. So if I'm to um, reiterate what you've said, there are two things that the court will look at. And they will look at either the outcome and to the process that led to that outcome. So it, it is not the intention of a court to subvert the will of the people as they voted at their uh, polling stations. However, they will look at the process that led to that voting. And if there are substantial illegalities and irregularities that are material and have an impact either one on the outcome of the election, then they will invalidate um, an election. Or if the process, this disregarding the outcome, whatever the outcome is, if the process was in such a manner that no reasonable um, institution or body would stand by it, it, it had sufficient um, doubts that it was not as clear or as transparent or as it should have been, did not follow the law correctly, then re re regardless of the outcome, a court can also invalidate an election. Very true. That is the position. Thank you, Dr. Basiri. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will look at the gag orders. We'd also like to inform the 2022 election candidates at all levels, whether it's presidential, gubernatorial, National Assembly, Senate, Women Report, MCA, that if you'd like to file a petition to contest the outcome of the election, or if you're just a concerned citizen who wants to file an election petition, we have a team of advocates here at Gikera and Vadgama Advocates that will represent you and guide you through the petition process. You can call us at Gikera and Vadgama Advocates on 0718-870-167, or you can pay us a visit at our head office in Nairobi. Our address is 56 Muthithi Road, Westlands. We also have branches in Mombasa and Nanyuki. Welcome back to the GVA Legal Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Conrad Basire, the former Chief of Staff in the Kenya Judiciary from 2018 to 2021. Let's continue. Now, our constitution gives the court, the Supreme Court, 14 days in which to hear the presidential election petition. Is this time frame enough to make that kind of determination? The will of all the voting Kenyan people rests on this court for this period of time. Is it enough time? That is usually a crazy timeline. Um, of course, uh, you have to recognize the legitimacy behind this provision. Um, in the past, you find that uh, the life basically uh, stops <laughs> when there's a transition moment. Uh, everything stalls, governance disrupted. We are all waiting to hear who's the president before things normalize and go on. And you cannot hold the country ransom for uh, several weeks. Uh, so that is the reason why they put a 14-day period within which to determine this. However, yes, you look at uh, the processes, the technical things, the gathering of evidence, the arguing and presentation of that evidence in court, uh, the applications that come in, the rulings that you have to make before the main determination. I look at the evidentiary procedures, the call, the applications for more information, discoveries of documents within the IBC, which the defense law, the, the lawyers for the parties may not have, uh, you know, and they try to compel uh, the orders for opening of service. 
those things take time. These arguments for applications, the main arguments for the main petition, and uh, time for filing. And then now consider the poor judges who have to sit down and review thousands of documents before reaching a comprehensive decision. All that within a week or less. Uh, if you put it together from the day of filing. The day starts running from the date the documents are accepted up to the 14th day. Actually, what happened in Zambia uh, is that uh, they, are, they had a similar time period. Yes. The court took its time, understandably. Then they had not delivered the judgment by the 14th day. Within and the required they, yeah, time frame. And they, they dismissed it, saying that there is no time to do this. We are time bad to render any decision. Yeah. And what happens in that situation? Uh, a crisis. Because the court says, uh, we had, uh, you know, in my view, what uh, would happen is then <laughs> people have to be accountable. What did people reasonably do? Did the court uh, manage the case process? That is why if you look at the, the courts, the Supreme Court has issued regulations for the petitions so that everything is achieved within the 14 days. You cannot uh, drag your feet as court or as parties, and then the time runs out and say, "Oh, we are we, we are out of time." You know, I think it's it's an injustice to the parties, and in the Zambian case, uh, the, the blame lies on the court. In the court. Yeah, because you have to have uh, judicious management of time, and in the worst case scenario in Kenya. We have issued summary of rulings and then issued a comprehensive judgment later. Uh, and that is uh, an, an, an outshoot of this uh, severely limited uh, time to consider petitions. It's true. I do understand the challenge of the court. If, mm. For instance, in a situation where you have to audit the process of the election, the election is not just the day, as we've said. The Some of the activities that may be under determination before the court may have happened months earlier. True. So within a time frame of 14 days, the court must analyze data that has precedes them perhaps even by three four years it could even be data regarding the continuous registration of voters which Very did true. not stop Very and true. to try and determine at which point there was a challenge within the 14-day time frame it's it's a tall order, but I'm very, very proud of our judiciary for having done it yeah. twice. Anyway, on that point, actually, the Judiciary Committee on Elections, the JCE, actually submitted reports to Parliament uh, proposing an amendment of the Constitution, because it's a Constitution which provides for 14 days, yes. proposing to have one month. Uh, to determine uh, for the entire from 14 days to maybe so, a 21 day or 30 day period. Yes, so that they can have enough time for this. Uh, but uh, Parliament, in its wisdom at that time, uh, did not uh, consider that. Uh, and, and maybe uh, going forward, that uh, might be a live issue that could be subject to um, an amendment, a if constitutional a amendment. If a petition is filed, I'm 100% sure it's one of the issues that any discerning Kenyan. Uh, we'll see. They will see the rush with which uh, things are carried out. Hopefully not uh, at the expense of substantive justice. Final question. Um, the question of the legal question of subjudice, things that you can discuss while a matter is under consideration before the court. What can we and can we not make comments on in the public domain when a presidential election petition is in process? Uh, a very important question in view of the amendment to the Supreme Court uh, petition rules that were recently uh, promulgated by the Supreme Court. 
uh, and which were declared unconstitutional, unconstitutional. by the court uh, recently. Um, and I, I like giving a bit of background to an issue. So, you know, the subsidies rule is a carryover from the common law uh, system. And basically this was uh, don't prejudice uh, the mind of a judge when they are handling an issue by making comments, especially on the outcome. Or uh, that was the that is the old rationale for the subsidies uh, rule, but this has to be balanced against very fundamental freedoms. And here, uh, an election petition, as we say, that uh, any Kenyan can go to court. So, what prevents any Kenyan from um, making a comment uh, from making a comment on 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 a case? I looked at the the, the rules which uh, were challenged, and here basically they wanted to prevent uh, litigants and related parties to the case from commenting on the outcome of the case during the hearing of the petition. And here, you know, you run into a challenge because uh, the, such a provision, if it stands, the court, of course, said it doesn't stand. But if it stands, then uh, still you have to look at the justifiable limitation. Uh, of rights under the fundamental rights and freedoms in an open and democratic society. Can you prevent uh, anyone, regardless, is it an advocate, uh, a member of the public, from commenting on a very public issue, you know? And the other argument which I've always agreed with is that, you know, uh, judges are part of the society. They know the discussions which are going on. They know the biases about the issues they're handling. They know because they are trained lawyers, they know the legal and technical issues that they are going to handle. So in that context, I think the, the, the impact of such a law, uh, even if it was intended to not to prejudice the lawyers, in my view, is very minimal because... Um, lawyers or judges will hear uh, the discussions, but when they sit down, uh, they'll consider the issues vis-a-vis -vis the law as they are trained and experienced and uh, basically make the outcome. And actually, um, if there is uh, any possibility that or any demonstrable evidence, however way you look at it or gather it, that a judge was prejudiced uh, by such comments, then uh, actually it's uh, an issue, let's say it's a lower court, it's an issue for appeal, if there is evidence for that. And if it's the Supreme Court, which has been prejudiced, it will be very difficult uh, to, to tell. So in my view, we, we really need to recast the subjudice rule in view of the, where we are now as a society. And uh, it's a rule which has very minimal uh, effect in terms of what it was to control back then and its relevance uh, now, yeah? Uh, because at the end of the day, judges will still consider the law. And even if you prevent those comments, the comments, when they sit down at their homes to see the 9 p.m. news, they will see comments on the cases. Not even the 9 p.m. news. I feel like social media has become yeah. an integral part of our lives right now. Uh, Once you open up any social media platform, you'll be inundated with various opinions on an issue that is in within the public domain. Yeah. So I, I, I think um, maybe it was out of abundance of caution, uh, but uh, you step out of the box and look at it. You say... Uh, there, 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 there is no uh, impact. And, and, and I think 
judges are very well trained people, very experienced. They're actually trained to look at evidence. They are trained to look at the law Focus and the whether the evidence issues. matches the law and whether the law matches the evidence and then give a just outcome out of that. And regardless of what you comment in court or out of court, they'll still do it. So I, I, I think um, it, I agree with the court that uh, uh, set aside those regulations. Um, they were an unnecessary fetter on uh, the, 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 the client. And, and mainly because, not because of the individual rights of the lawyers, mainly because the election is a heavy public interest issue and it will attract comments. And let's not stifle uh, debate, especially uh, if uh, uh, there's no demonstrable way that it impacts on the content of the outcome of the petition from the courts. And if it actually impacts, then uh, the, the courts themselves have legal provisions in the Supreme Court Act to address those when they arise. Now, in the spirit of liberalizing debate on issues that may be before the court, four IBC commissioners um, decamped from the commission and said that they do not stand by the current result of the election. Must, this is the question, does the Electoral Commission, IBC, need to agree on the telling process for presidential elections before the chairperson declares the results of the election? Thank you. Uh, a very current question, which I've seen uh, lawyers on both sides argue very passionately about. Um, let me just uh, throw in a couple of relevant provisions in the Constitution, in the Acts, and in the regulations. Yes. So if you look at Article uh, 138.3c uh, of the Constitution, I think let me read that for our listeners. Yes, Article 138.3c of the Constitution on the procedure at presidential election says that in a presidential election, after counting the votes in the polling stations, the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission shall tally and verify the count and declare the result. So it says the IEBC, the IEBC, it doesn't say the chair of the IEBC, it says the IEBC shall tally and declare uh, declare no 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 tally verify the count and declare the result yes then if you go to uh, article 13810 which the lawyers love quoting article 13810 of the constitution says that within 7 days after the presidential election the chairperson of the independent electoral and boundaries commission shall declare the result of the election and deliver a written notification of the result to the chief justice and the incumbent president. So the IEBC chair shall declare, but the tallying and the counting shall be done by the commission. Then you go to section 7 of the IEBC Act. Uh, if you don't have it there, I, the, the, the provision uh, basically is that uh, the, the decision is by consensus, if not by consensus, by majority of the commissioners. That is section 7 of the IEBC Act. Um, so for me, uh, there are very clear provisions about decision-making uh, in the IEBC. I've heard my colleagues talk about uh, the chairperson being the returning officer and therefore able to uh, do it uh, without uh, consultation or, or, or uh, do it regardless of the views that the other commissioners have. I, I, I think such a position even flies against Article 10 of the Constitution where it is about consultation. It's about collective.
collective decision making it's about consensus building and basically how public institutions uh, should be run and there's even a court of appeal case the Mainakiai case which says uh, without whether the constitution intended to give such powers to an individual uh, to do so now or oh, my last my very last comment on that so you can see where my position is going on this issue yeah, that there must uh, be a unanimous decision uh, that has to be reached by the commissioners yeah. before the chairperson declares the result article 138.3c then as read with article 138.10 of the constitution so tally and count and verify the ibc does that declare the ibc chair does that under article 10 decision making in the constitution section 7 of the ibc act clarifies its consensus or majority and the regulations also say consensus or uh, majority so but then again uh, section 7 of the ibc act says uh, when any matter is before the commission yeah so is the issue of telling verifying counting an issue or a matter before the IBC that is an issue which uh, ultimately it comes before the supreme court they have to determine whether that process is a matter before the IBC and subject to debate and various interpretations uh, depending on <laughs> We'll see so what issues, the Supreme yeah. Court will give yes. us on that yes. issue. Yes. This brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank you. Um, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Conrad Basiri. Thank you so much for your excellent insights, Dr. Basiri. Final words for our listeners. Thank you very much. It was indeed a pleasure for me to have uh, this uh, discussion. And of course, like all Kenyans, we'll be looking at all eyes are now trained. They will be moving from Pomas uh, to the Supreme Court to see... Uh, the arguments and uh, uh, hear the outcome of uh, the the petitions here but uh, again uh, maybe as a closing comment on this process i want to join every other person who has said that so far uh, kenyans i think there is uh, they have demonstrated maturity uh, in in, in t- whatever the outcome of the the elections some restraint and the, the leaders showing the way that if we have differences then we have set mechanisms and avenues in the law to address those uh, differences and at the end of it all let's realize despite these differences elections are just but a nation building activity at the end of it all we have a nation uh, to build we have no other alternative place so let's make this country um, the best place to live in and basically democracy is not about uh, Uh, necessarily liking your neighbor but <laughs> it is about a coexisting with a person whom you have differences with and finding a way of solving those differences and that is what nation building is about thank you very much thank you um i am your host jean kambuni thank you for joining us on the gva legal podcast we hope that you found this episode informative tell us what you think about it on our email our email address is info@gvalawfirm.com you can also follow gikera and badgama advocates on social media you can find us on linkedin twitter instagram facebook as gva lawfirm let's get free